Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. The podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. So on today's show, we're going to talk a bit about well-being from a different lens. So if you search, if you were to go on the Googles um, and search well-being resources, uh, a multitude of sites will show up promoting everything from detox teas to yoga gear that says namaste with like a sloth on it and all of this kind of stuff and YouTube and Instagram fitness instructors um, and mental health practitioners promoting things to help you be your best self. And when you click on some of these links and just kind of peep the imagery, you will find that the overwhelming number of folks highlighted um, on these sites as practitioners um, making offerings are white. Now on its face, that's not a bad thing. But we do know from previous shows that I've done that different kinds of communities approach well-being in different ways with different needs. I've talked about that again on previous episodes. Um, There is some diversity, of course, in the well-being space, but it is given minimal attention at best. I've gone through, um, gone down more than my share of Instagram rabbit holes uh, looking for well-being resources specifically geared to me as a middle-aged African-American woman. Um, The relative lack of an inaccessibility to diversity in the well-being space makes it really pretty hard for those of us with marginalized identities um, to be engaged. Um, There seems to just be limited choices. So that's one aspect that we're going to talk about. The other that is really more complicated is how well-being is pursued in terms of practice. We see lots of meditation programs. There's all kinds of apps. There's yoga enthusiasts and a whole like industry just related to yoga clothing. (laughs) There is even a new reality show that's supposed to be starting sometime soon on uh, the channel TBS. It's called Lost Resort. It's It's supposedly hosted at an, an, I quote, exotic wellness retreat led by five, quote, eclectic alternative healers. Now, pro tips. So let's break this down just for a moment. The term exotic, code word for non-white and non-Judeo-Christian, eclectic, code word for non-normative presentation of some sort, and alternative means non-Western, right? So all of these things are considered like not the norm. The thing a lot of well-being programs have in common is this liberal appropriation of the spiritual, sacred, and ritualistic practices of many cultures pulled together kind of haphazardly and repackaged as new, hip, hip breakthrough practices that have been, air quote, discovered by dominant culture. Many of these practices have been around for millennia. They were not discovered. They were co-opted. Often the stories, the relevance, and the rich history of these practices is left behind, and and the physical activities um, that are a part of these practices are kept and commercialized for profit. Hello, goat yoga. 
talking about you. So a few years ago, hashtags like wellness so white began to really take off and really force a conversation that interrogates this behavior, which is usually referred to as colonization, which a dominant culture comes in supposedly to save the indigenous peoples while borrowing and I use that term liberally, (laughs) culture. The movement to highlight more diverse folks um, and practices working in well-being, the well-being space has really taken off in the last decade or so. Um, And more and more folks are are really kind of starting to look for more authentic well-being practices led by folks who are associated with the cultures of origin. So today we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, And as more and more of us in the veterinary profession look to adopt better well-being practices personally and professionally and academically, I thought that we should really kind of explore this need to decolonize well-being um, and to be intentional about how we move forward. So joining me is my friend and colleague, AAVMC's Director of Well-Being, Mackenzie Peterson. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lisa. Awesome. So for newbies to the podcast, Mackenzie, why don't you uh, share a bit about yourself? Where are you from? What you doing? Oh, oh gosh, what we are doing. Well, so Mackenzie Peterson, originally born and raised in Alaska, and I went and did my uh, undergrad and grad in Utah, lived out in Boston for about six and a half years, and then eventually moved here to New York State, where that's where I am housed is in New York State while AVMC is in D.C. So we are living in this new pandemic world, a virtual remote life. So as far as being the director for well-being at AVMC goes, we're doing a lot of really great things. We're looking at well-being from a systems approach rather than just from individual interventions. So that's one thing that we're really trying to amplify more in the veterinary space is looking at the systems that we all are navigating in, which, of course, connects to diversity, equity, inclusion. It connects to curriculum, how we actually view the profession, who we see as being veterinarians, who gets to participate in these spaces and who these spaces are really built for. And knowing that the origin, of course, of higher education in general is basically cis white males, is that when we have more and more diversity, more and more inclusion, we start to see how these, these systems, they only get tweaks as we keep going through time. They So we're starting to see that tweaks aren't really cutting it. Uh, tweaks aren't decolonizing systems. We got to really rethink about completely overhauling our systems. If we talk about decolonizing our systems, decolonizing our minds, decolonizing our education, and even decolonizing our well-being practices. So let's talk about what is decolonization? What is it? I mean, decolonization for me, in that sense, is very much around, you know, of course, colonization being that process that takes a traditional practice from a marginalized group for the benefit of the dominant group and they repackage it, you know, take away the origin and the meaning of it. And generally speaking, systemically wise, it's, there's some financial profit through this. So some consumerism is engaged in this. And we know that colonization is also capitalist in its nature. So we know that if they're going to take something from you, it's to make money off of that. The dominant group wants to make money off that. So we saw that with rock and roll. We saw that with Elvis You know, we see that throughout a lot of things um, when it comes to music, when it comes to hip hop, when it comes to um, particularly very much in the U.S. of appropriating other cultures. And I think in the U.S., particularly, we kind of view that as like, oh, we're one big melting pot. But I'm like, yeah, you're melting everyone down to be eaten by white people. Like it's a melting pot for white consumption, not really a melting pot that white folks are in as well. Like we get to 
cherry pick out, oh, here I kind of like this. Oh, this seems so interesting. This makes me look or feel like I'm, I'm a wild woman of the wild sisterhood and, you know, those concepts. So I think when we talk about decolonizing, it's no longer viewing every other culture from a white perspective, from that white position of, oh, I only know about India because of what the history books have said from colonization. India didn't exist until England colonized it. You know, those sort of concepts of things didn't exist until white people discovered them. When we know that white folks didn't really discover anything, people have been around this entire globe for so long. Uh, so that's one thing about decolonizing is removing your point of reference mm. from no longer being white, but to being a point of reference in other spaces. Spaces, right. And so you, you've kind of talked a little bit about appropriation as well. And we we see lots of examples of that. I mean, you know, if, if folks are on social media every year, there's, you know, the poor Kardashians. I'm sorry, I'm a little, I'll say that a little tongue in cheek, but forever, you know, there's always like, oh, boxer braids. And I'm like, okay, but braids have been around for a long time just because Chloe did two braids, two French braids down. Like it's not a new thing, right? Um, but we see appropriation a lot in fashion. We see it in, in um, the health and wellness and well being industries. We see it all over the place, right? And so that is, again, when you kind of take that thing, um, that, that, item or practice or belief system and kind of just extract out <laughs> what can be commercialized, repackage it and commercialize it, right? And so what does that have to do? What, do, what does this really all have to do with well-being? Well, I think when it comes to well-being, the there because there's this also this sense of globalization as well as appropriation. Like we have globalization that, of course, we're all sharing information, we're sharing cultures, we're sharing ideas and beliefs and ideologies. And then there's the appropriation, like you said, like it is different from globalization. Mm -hmm. It does have a different meaning. When it comes to well-being within that space, I think in many ways, this well-being movement, and I don't even know if I call it a movement so much, I think it's always existed there, but it's just really being amplified more so now when it's a counterpoint to the relatively inefficient, inaccessible or alienating elements of our US healthcare system. Folks are starting to see that maybe well-being initially maybe has some anti-establishment origins, mm -hmm. but because people are now seeing that there is a way to make money off of this space and a lot of money, let's be honest, like, as you said, a luxury well-being resorts, people looking for themselves. And, you know, now it's a very new elite establishment. It profits off serious insecurities, medical problems. And that it really has shifted to this commodified approach of trendy food diets, you know, yoga retreats, luxury products that have a price point that very few people can afford. So when it comes to decolonizing well-being, we almost want to go back to what the origin of well-being was meant to be, was universally accessible, not meant to be about what products you own or anything like that. And it wasn't about, can I travel to this retreat and be pay $800 to be in a silent retreat? pay $800 to be quiet, you know, and, you know, what a privileged luxury that is for some folks where that's this idea that well-being is something outside of me, not something inside me. Uh, it's definitely something that we see with colonization that we want it to be. Nope, nope. We're going to take it. It's going to be have a price point and you're never going to be well if you don't have this. We love you. You're great. You're good as you are if you just get this. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing a lot in 
in really colonized well-being spaces of you're a great, wonderful person, but you know, you're still not a whole person yet until you've done this. You're not a whole person until you've lost 10 pounds, until you look just like the girls in the yoga posters, until you can bend over and like see your tush, like everything that we kind of, uh, or, or this idea of like, I, my third eye has opened and I'm so woke. I, all my chakras are in alignment. And I think we've really have hit the space where well-being is no longer about the individual and the community connection that it was about. Now it's becoming much more this nebulous, try whatever is going to work for you, regardless of what the origin, regardless of whether or not you're respectfully consuming or engaging in these spiritual healing practices of other spaces. Yeah. So, so there's this difference between uh, kind of the intrinsic versus the extrinsic, right? Like I'm looking for an external fix yeah. to all of the internal insecurities <laughs> that I'm dragging yeah. around, right? It's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, folks who, and, you know, let's, let's go for the jugular on this one. And I'll even say this for myself, people in my early twenties, based on my childhood experiences were like, wow, you have a lot of daddy issues. And I'm sitting here going, huh, yeah, I don't feel like I've really unpacked a lot of the things that happened in my upbringing. So what did I do? I went and I purchased clothes. Um, I had a bunch of credit cards that were open on that one. And, you know, just going through the how can I buy a thing to fill that hole? Yeah. And I think well-being as an industry, not as a concept, but the industry itself, I think really tries to monopolize on that that it's well-being at a significant cost, that you can get that healing, get that wholeness from a tincture, a potion, a balm, from sitting quietly for three days rather than 30 minutes. You know, it's, um, if you can bend your body in half, then maybe you'll be whole. Right, right. So, so you've mentioned a bit about, you know, the inaccessibility, certainly around cost, but what are some of the other ways that well-being efforts are inaccessible? And, and why? <laughs> why do we make it so inaccessible? I think aside from aside from the cost, like you said, there's this there's this inaccessibility in the well-being space because of how we a hundred percent promote it and the images we slap on it. Hundred percent. It is the mainstream advertising and product consumption strongly centers white upper class thin bodied cis females in its visualization, in its programming, in the um, and I think a lot of the life experiences that they reference as, as their hook into pulling you in. So I think there's, there's always some of those things where, um, once again, it's, it's always something outside of you that is going to fix you. And evidently, according to our industry, it, it would tell me we're only here to fix the white, upper-class, thin-bodied cis females. Mm. But I think even more so when we talk about well-being it's like we even we have to push even harder to pull it back to what the origin of this was all about, which was a, a deep understanding of who you are, your needs, a sense of self-determination, and also a sense of connection to yourself and to others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I um I am a long term, long time uh yoga practitioner. Um and I practice at home because I'm really, I've often been intimidated about going to a studio. Hardly anybody's there looks like me. Their leadership doesn't look like me. Nobody's there. I'm a little on the curvy side. Um, the, my body doesn't do 
a lot of those things that <laughs> doesn't either. My body does not do those things. Like well, the thing is, and there's not going to be wheel. There's not like, and yet I'm like, I really want to be able to do these things. So here is like this this ball thing that costs like you know um, this amount of money or a bolster. I was searching for a bolster earlier um, this year. Now a bolster. Let's break this down for folks that don't practice yoga. It's a pillow. <laughs> it's a pillow that goes under your body, lifts you up, so that you can actually. Uh, it's assist. It's an assistive device, right? Assistive device to help you kind of maybe get into lotus pose or whatever. Um, Eighty dollars for a pillow. A pillow. For a pillow. For right. probably a memory foam pillow. Right. For a pillow, and you know, I'm like, ah, do I really need this? But I really want it because I want to be able to do. X. But what is the thing about X? Like, okay, so I achieved that. And then what? Oh, well, you know, oh, but I saw on Instagram, this person put their leg here. Uh, Okay. So next thing is, you know, my nearly 50 year old self is like, I'm going to shoot for the stars and end up in urgent care. Right. (laughs) And so so there's this constant versus this constant need to, there's a, a propelling, but it's all as you mentioned, very external. It's not a, let me sit with this stuff and how does it feel and what is it connected to? And, you know, and all of those kinds of of things. And so it really is so easy to fall down that rabbit hole of, of consumption, but also feeling like, oh, well, I have, ascended to whatever X level is in this practice or the purchase of X, Y, and Z, but I still feel not enough. Like it's not enough. Right. So, so if well-being is really seen as promoting connection to self and others, why do we need to decolonize it? Like, I think we've kind of talked about that, but, but what does that look like? Yeah, I think for me, when I think about decolonizing it in, in this way, when it talks, when we're talking about connection, because right now, currently, it's connection at a cost. It's commodified connection. Mm-hmm. You want to go to yoga, yoga studio to be around other people who may also be looking for the same thing you are, mm-hmm. um, which is just a sense of connection to something more than just us being in our houses in a pandemic. Um, so, you know, there's, there's these things. So when we talk about decolonizing it, of course, I think there's this well-being is meant to be the inverse of consumerism. It's meant to be about wholeness and feeling connected. Um, and so we're to decolonize that, it's almost, you really have to do that strong fight against how do I commodify this into how do I make this so free, so accessible? You don't have to buy an $80 pillow. You don't have to buy the specialty yoga mat that can take you to the next level. Um, you don't need to do these things. And so I think we need to go back to that original thought of it, the ability to gather information and resources to help you live a life that you think is successful, the fullest version of yourself, the fullest version of the relationships you want to have in your life. And very few of those, very few of those things require massive amounts of money and they don't really require pricey yoga mats. And, you know, we don't do any of this work alone, but we do we do have to do work that needs to be done alone. Like there's the work of self and then there's work of community. So when I talk about well-being and this connection, this, this idea of decolonizing it is not that, well, you can only connect with me if we look alike, act alike, be alike. 
it's also, I can have a connection with you in a sense where I see you represented in other people who I know. I see you represented also in different areas of myself. And that's free. Yeah. I don't need the Beachbody membership to do that, even though I'm probably still going to buy it because my cardiovascular system is not in a good place. But, you know, I'm not going on there for well-being. I'm going on there for like my physical fitness, not for a sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some concrete ways that we can approach uh, being socially conscious about well-being efforts? So I know folks are like, this makes sense. Cool. What do I do now? Well, I think for me, when I look at how someone can kind of be more socially responsible in the spaces, if you really are curious about a practice or an activity or belief system that's not part of your backstory, do your research then ask questions, then engage in those introductory spaces that are meant for you to engage. If you, if I roll into um, a huge institution in like some massive law firm building and I walk through the front door and I want to engage in this comp in this organization, I sit in the, in the lobby, in the waiting room meant for guests. I don't walk straight in and go right back into like the employee break room. And that's what I hope people can do when they're trying to be conscientious about engaging in practices that are not part of their origin story. And it's, you know, are you, cause like when, um, like when I was doing, uh, I did martial arts for a little bit in college. And for me, there was introductory classes. It was not, oh yes, watch all the YouTube videos you want and then come to our competition to do the, to do that. There's, there's spaces for folks who are learning, who are trying to begin somewhere. And that's another thing I think we need to be aware of when it comes to well-being is that everyone is at a different place than, as, as we all are, right? Some folks are very much connected to the idea of what they need to feel balanced, to feel as a connection to their bodies, to other people. They have, they've, they've explored it enough. They know kind of what they need, what resonates with them. And so there are folks who are trying to find that. They're trying to find what connects. And some things they connect with for a little bit and then it fizzles out and they don't know why. So they're on to the next thing, trying around. It's like musical chairs of well-being practices. But unfortunately, that tends to be really disrespectful when it's used, oh, you're not filling me? No, oh, okay, fine, forget it, try something else. And that's where I feel like we're not being conscientious, socially responsible engagers of other people's practices um, of their activities, of their belief system. Because I don't think anyone is saying you can't engage in this space. You, No one is saying white people shouldn't do yoga. But what right. we're saying is, is, do you understand where it comes from? Do you understand that it's not just a fitness class? Right. Um, there's a lot more connected to yoga than just increased flexibility. Right, right, right. In fact, uh, there's um, there are lots of practitioners, lots, many really, really great practitioners who say it actually has very little to do with the physical practice. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so as AAVMC's director of well-being, so you're going to be, you know, you're working with your colleagues at the colleges of veterinary medicine, and of course, this is like one of the big, hot, sexy topics: well-being, well-being, well-being. And and we know that there are definitely um, issues running kind of through the profession that we spend a lot of time talking about with respect to well-being. So what are some of your recommendations to, to your colleagues um, out, you know, in the colleges, at the colleges? I think for me, the recommendations that I would have is that you need to have multiculturally competent well-being professionals in your space. 
I don't think that multicultural competence is something that should only land on your director of diversity. That's not something that should only be for like the folks of color who then teach all the white folks how to do that. These are readily available resources. You don't have to go very far online or very far your institutions to find that information to learn. So I think having well-being folks who understand the layers of identities, who understand that there's multicultural competencies that are connected to the well-being space, I think is one thing we definitely want to make sure folks are understanding. And I know that AVMC, I mean, Lisa, you have this fantastic institutional organizational assessment around diversity, equity, inclusion for well-being. Um, I've created another institutional assessment tool around well-being. Using those together is such a great way to dovetail the, the ways that well-being and diversity inclusion really overlap. Yeah, yeah that's great. And so for individuals, uh, all of our, our veterinary colleagues um, and whatever walk of the profession that they're in, um, you know, who are really trying to be conscientious and, and thoughtful and, you know, um, there, you know, no one is suggesting, please know, no one is su suggesting that you burn or talk trash your Lululemon leggings, <laughs> but, you know, um, what recommendations at that, at that individual personal level? Recommendations at that individual level, I would definitely say that it, one, if you're, if you're working at one of our institutions, uh, our member institutions, and you're the one in charge of running well-being programming, I think you should really think about the intentionality of if we're going to be having, if we're going to be offering activities that have non-Western origins, are we thoughtful about who's leading those activities? Are we thoughtful about how they're promoted? Are we looking at the images that we're putting out there? Are, are they only thin bodies? Are they only white bodies? And I think it would be really valuable to consider opening events like this with an introduction about the origins and the history of activities. Education doesn't end outside the classroom, outside of like their medical education. That education also should continue in any of their activities, you know, that are happening even within their student clubs. Let's talk, we had um, at one of the institutions I was at, they have every year they have a drag show and it's run by folks who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. They put on the show and for a lot of it, you know, it's been a learning experience for them. And they've learned that, the that having education be part of that was what helped bring more allies to those shows to understand more and learn more and actually explicitly giving them permission to engage in a space that they might feel, I don't know what I would do. Am I gonna say something that's gonna hurt someone? Well, here's how we come in. Here's how we operate. Here's how we run a show. And here's what we encourage you to do. We encourage you to like, you know, do the woos, like, you know, do the whistles. Like, yes, we want you to engage, like bring your, bring your energy. But here's the ways that you don't engage with this. So there's, I think the more that we can do the individual education piece, I think is always great for us to be responsible ethical consumers of these things. Mm. So now is the super fun part where we get to talk about what our favorite, some of our favorite content sources are for being more inclusive around well-being. So let's go. Mackenzie, what are you looking at? <laughs> what Talking about what? Where do you get some of your? You know, where where do you get content? Well, there's some great stuff uh, with the National Association um, from NAMI, um, National Mental Health Association. Uh, they have some great resources around Black mental health. I think it's really incredibly valuable. I think Black mental health is not something that's discussed enough. Um, so I think that those are really good spaces. A lot of the national associations are 
around mental health have really good inclusive well-being information for uh, for BIPOC folks. I think it's really good. And I think it's also information that all of our member institutions and our well-being professionals should readily have on hand. I think we also should be looking at having more um, diversity and inclusion around the well-being professionals that we hire. Are all of the counselors in your institution white folks? Are all of them of the same gender? Are all of them um, from the same background? I think those are things that we might need to look at when we, we talk about sources of inclusive well-being information. Great. So I will happily share some of my um, rabbit hole findings <laughs> as well. Um, so some there's some really great resources actually on um, platforms like Instagram and, and Twitter and, and those types of things. But, um, you know, hashtags following, you know, a lot of things you can follow on Instagram aren't just accounts. You can follow hashtags. And so, you know, black yogis, um, Indian yogis, you can follow accessible yoga, which is one that I really, really Really like because it dovetails. You will see um, folks who are um, disabled doing yoga. You'll see folks with um, fat bodies, medium-sized bodies, all kinds of bodies um, doing yoga and talking about how to make it accessible. Um, you'll find um, looking for um, you know, fitness instructors of color on YouTube and uh, Instagram and, and, you know, on the Facebook lives and all of these kinds of things. Folks are out there um, and you just really kind of have to look for them. But the, but hashtags is a really great way of, at least on Instagram, tripping into um, finding some really, really great folks. And I have to say, I'm a huge, huge fan of Jessamine Stanley, um, which uh, you know, for folks that are have sensitive <laughs> sensitivities, FYI, she is no holes barred. So she is um, authentically her and she <laughs> is um, got a bit of a potty mouth, no judgment, but a bit of a potty mouth. But she's really um, a self-taught yogi. Um, she has been the training and all of that type of thing. But but she is one of those folks. She's uh, she's African American. She's Baha'i. She identifies as queer. She identifies as poly. Like she's like this wonderful kind of combination of so many things. But she's you know for me as a, a yogi, I I've learned so much about how she talks about that the the notion that the physical postures um, in yoga really are so secondary to the feelings that you feel in the physical postures um, being the actual yoga and the, the discomfort and all of those kinds of things. And, and um, you know, so there's some really cool folks out there to follow. And if you were to follow her, don't worry, she tags all kinds of other people and you can be like me on Friday nights in the middle of a pandemic with nothing else to do going down rabbit holes on Instagram. So, um, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff. I mean, like the Steve Fund is a really fantastic organization that focuses solely on supporting the mental health of students of color. So they have a lot of amazing resources. Um, we have Black Girl Magic, also awesome. Um, there's a lot of information that around, you know, the National Alliance of Mental Health, um, Race and Racism and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention around minority mental health resources. We, um, at AVMC, me and Lisa, sorry, I have a fuzz. Uh, me and Lisa created this document around integrating 
multicultural competencies within academic well-being events. And there's like two full pages of bullet-pointed resources all at the end that range from like dealing with microaggressions, how to be a good ally, mental health and self-care, inclusive, incorporating inclusive well-being in your education and in your workspace. So a lot of good things. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite colleagues I have, um, Ida, I'm going to, I'm going to really not get their last name right. Ida Mundale at Ida Mundale on Instagram. So okay. Ida's amazing educator, therapist, anti-racist, um, poly, queer, very engaged in, um, in the space around liberation of black and brown bodies, particularly when it comes to mental health and relationships and living a life that is authentically representative of you and your self-determination. Awesome, awesome stuff coming out from Ida. Great. Yeah. And I certainly have posted things on the uh, podcast Facebook page. There is um, therapy for black girls, which isn't just for black girls, um, but uh, that's the name of the thing. And there's also a podcast. Um, there's the National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network, which is, you know, um, a group that I just came across recently. Um, and, you know, there are lots of really great, they tend to be kind of small, but really great networks out there. Um, if you're looking for therapists, if you're looking for, um, you know, uh, fitness instructors, all of those kinds of things, there are groups out there. You just kind of have to dig a little below the surface um, to find folks who are um, uh, utilizing these practices in very different ways and thinking about them in very, very different ways. And please make no mistake that just because um, folks of color are, are doing things doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a part of this kind of colonization thing as well, right? It's, it's not, um, you know, this is a, these things are so, this kind of commodification of well-being is so pervasive that it threads through everything and everyone, right? And so what we're just really encouraging folks to do is, is at least kind of think about um, diversifying your source material <laughs> and also being thoughtful about how those practitioners engage in those practices. I would definitely agree with that. I think, you know, when it comes to decolonizing well-being, it's also decolonizing bodies and not having them be tokenized or, or being held up as like, well, here we have a person of color. So here you go. We're good now because we, we have a we, we tokenized a person and put them in your in your face. And, you know, I think we need to be really cautious of that space when we are seeing people being tokenized or we see that they are still operating from a colonized mindset. They're like, yeah, they may share this identity with me, but they're not sharing the mindset that I'm looking for. And I, I think that's one thing that I will speak on behalf of many of the rooms I've been in with other white folks. There is the assumption that two black people think the same and have the same religious viewpoints, vote the same, like everything. And I'm like, that's really tokenizing that you just make yeah. that assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there may be some shared experiences, but that does not necessarily result in the same outlook. <laughs> Right. So finding your well-being sources that really, I think, resonate with where you're wanting to go for you and for the relationships that you're wanting to have in your life, I think is really crucial. And that's work you can only do alone to think, what do I really want? Where is this going? Not what other people tell me I should be doing, but what exactly is going to make me happiest in the long run? And am I constantly putting intention and energy towards that rather than other people? Yeah. 
Sounds good. Sounds good. And I think that that is a great place for us to wrap up. Unless you have any other parting words, Mackenzie. Just that we're, we're all on this together. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're all in the same storm. We're not all in the boat. And that's what I, I think some folks need to understand that someone looking for a practice that resonates with them may not have the, the access or the options that other people have. So I think there needs to be more compassion and more, I think just a, as, as I think you and I have said before in previous conversations, just a little more grace and helping people find the connections that they're looking for. Yeah. And sometimes being honest that the sometimes that connection is just with you. You got to make that connection with you. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, this has been another fun-filled episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, Mackenzie, thank you so much for being on the show. To subscribe to the podcast, be sure to open up that favorite podcast app or head on over to SoundCloud to find our channel. Be sure to also like the AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast page on Facebook. I post all kinds of um, good resources there. So until next time, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.